Hey, it's me, Tim Ranzetta, co-founder of NextGen Personal Finance. Thank you for tuning in to this NGPF podcast. Today on the show, we've got a panel. We'll have, you'll hear from Courtney from Winooski, Vermont, and Jeanette and Elena from Chicago, Illinois. What they share in common is they teach financial education to students who are recent immigrants to the United States. So that presents challenges when it comes to language. There are so many idioms that we take for granted if English is our native language that prove to be challenging. There's also tremendous cultural differences. So you're going to hear from both of them about those challenges, how they overcome them, some of their favorite activities, and how the work they're doing in the classroom also impacts families. So without further ado, Courtney, Elena, and Jeanette. Let's get started, folks. So this is the NGPF Speaker Series. Really excited to have our two guests with us today. I'll let them go ahead and introduce themselves. But uh, this is a really, I think, a really important session because many of you may have unique challenges, may have challenges that you feel are unique in terms of having a very diverse audience of students that you're working with. And uh, having visited Courtney's school in Winooski, Vermont, I can tell you uh, the challenges that come from, from working with a population that's not only where there are language issues, but clearly also cultural issues on a topic uh, such as money. So I'm going to stop talking now. Our two guests again today are Courtney Paquette and Jeanette Albert. So why don't I start with you, Courtney, tell us a little bit about yourself, a little bit about your school community. Sure. Thanks, Tim. So I've been teaching in Winooski, Vermont for 17 years now. It's hard to believe. But Winooski is, we kind of call ourselves the Brooklyn of Burlington. So if you're familiar with Vermont, Burlington is our biggest city and Winooski is a one square mile little city that sits right next to it. Um, and we think of ourselves as hip and up and trend, uh, trendy, just like Brooklyn. Um, but we have a really diverse student population. So we're one of a few places in the country where we're a refugee resettlement community. And so within our school, we have about 800 students pre-K through 12, all in the same building. And there's 27 different languages that are spoken from students in the building. And just to give you like a little bit of a, our socioeconomic background as well, um, a lot of the students are actually very transient because 65% of our population rents their homes and um, about 25% of the student population is living in poverty. So there's a, a wide socioeconomic grouping in our school, as well as different cultural and, and languages that are represented in our school. But with the challenges, there's also lots of opportunities. So I, I like focusing on those. All right, Janelle, let's hear about your school in Chicago. At Chicago Public Schools, I'm at Mather High School. Mather High School is one of the most diverse high schools in the city of Chicago. We're on the north side. We are right next to Little India, which you cannot say it's India. Every immigration, new immigration um, family um, seems to live in that area. Um, so we also um, cater to students who are taking Saturday school from other schools. So right now we're getting a lot of um, 
we're getting a lot of refugees from the Ukraine and from all these different countries. We have about 70 something different languages at our school. And in my classroom alone, I have at least 30 different languages when I put all my kids together. Um, it's a very, very, very diverse um, community. And one thing about our community in Chicago, or actually at Matter, is that it changes every year. So right now, we actually have a lot of South American students, especially Venezuela. And it's actually, we actually have gone to the hotel by the airport um, and registered students to come to our school. And we are nowhere near the airport. So they actually come to our school. They're being bused there because of our ESL um, ESL department, our ESL um, instructions, our ESL department is very large. We teach math ESL. We teach all kinds of different ESL um, classes. So every year, the countries that we get change. So we'll have, we'll, we'll have an influx of Right now, I have a whole bunch of kids from Afghanistan in my class. But a couple of years ago, it was Iraq. Then a couple of years before that, it was Mongolia. And there's always a steady stream of students from Vietnam, um, Rohingya students. So they're, they're coming from everywhere. Yeah. I actually had made that joke one time. I said, one day... Um, we are just gonna go to the airport and wait for a flight to come in and start registering the students as they land. And they were all laughing about it, but this year we actually had to go to wow. a hotel near O'Hara to register students that are coming from Venezuela. Yeah. So, yeah. So we have well, if there's uh, so if there's strife in the world somewhere, Jeanette, they're going to end up you're going to find students from those countries. Oh, Matt yeah. Time. Yeah. Whenever I see the news, I'm like, OK, they're coming to us. <laughs> All right. I want to get uh, a little bit before we dive into the, some of the challenges and how you overcome them. Uh, I'm going to go back to you, Courtney. Courtney, why are you so passionate about financial education? Okay, for me, this is, and I know so many of us say this probably, but it's the class that I always wish I had. So I'm just developing what I wish I knew when I was in high school for my students. But then I also am encouraged to just keep going because the students just soak it up. They want to learn everything. They have so many questions. They bring it back to their families. And so for me, I just, I want to teach personal finance all the time. That would be my dream come true. All right. I'm going to go to you, Jeanette, and then we'll go to Elena. What, why Why is this a subject that you are just so eager and passionate to teach? Okay, I have to be honest. We are. I am not teaching financial education right now in my classroom because I. every year my schedule changes. And right now I'm just teaching grammar. And But I do try and squeeze in some financial 
some financial literacy information, like we'll play a game from the arcade, like spend is always a really good one. They really love that one because it kind of hits close to home. Um, and there's a lot of explanation, of course, I have to do. Um, they don't understand a lot, a lot about the difference between credit cards and debit cards because they come from from cultures where you use cash, you don't use credit cards. And most of the students you have to, you have to remember, most of the students that come to us are not always from wealthy families. They, they escape poverty, they escape war. They don't have the means to have had a whole lot in their country. So um, financial literacy, <laughs> I, I've, I've actually been involved with this program for so long and I have taken classes and I have learned so much about the program and I love the program. And I'm always trying to find someone at our school who will listen to me to say, hey, yes, this is the best program ever with me because I really am passionate about it. But I haven't. I, I don't know why I'm I'm I keep running into closed doors and I have I think it was you actually Tim that I had talked to about that before that I that I've had really a difficult time um selling the program to our administrators but then in Chicago we we go through administrators they come and go and you know it's really hard to keep that you need to come to Chicago. Hey, come to <laughs> Chicago. <laughs> or you can invite Courtney because I think she can do a better job selling than I can. Yeah. With, uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, but let me jump back to, to Courtney again. You know what? I'm just thinking about standing in front of a group of students where 21 languages are spoken in my school and maybe there's 10 in the classroom. Like, let's deal with language barriers first. How do you manage that? So for me, I think a lot of times there's students in the class that can translate if that that needs to happen where another student can help one student out. But I tend to just rely in my class a lot on videos. So I find that videos are really helpful for students. We couldn't tackle a whole article like if I was following the semester course page by page, I have to pick and choose what I'm going to use. And that's what I love about the curriculum is it's so adaptable for what I need. But I think a lot of videos and then having students translate, but then a lot of hands-on activities wherever there's visuals, I think are really helpful. So I like doing all of the arcade games as well. I like running simulations. We play board games where we can, just so that way students actually have the experience. Um, the other thing is I usually don't get students in my class when they first arrive. So that, that can help a little bit. Um, but I do have a lot of students in my class who are at the kindergarten reading level. And so a lot of times their oral communication skills will be higher than their, their reading skills and their writing skills. And so I just try to assess each student where they're at and then partner them with other students who might be able to help support them in the class too. And then what are some other examples similar to what Jeanette just mentioned, how the idea of credit and debit really doesn't, doesn't, is really difficult concept for them to grasp. Are there others where you're like, okay, this, I'm, this is going to require a lot of in-depth a conversation where an American student might just be, oh, this is a given because I've lived in this system and I know how it works. Like, what are the biggest uh, her, biggest challenges, products that you have to explain to people that are so foreign to them? Yeah, I mean, for a lot of schools, I listen to other teachers where they say, I'm, I'm helping my students set up Roth IRAs. 
For me, I'm helping my students set up bank accounts. So they don't have necessarily experience with the banking system. They don't understand how banking works. And they have a lot of mistrust about putting money in somebody else's hands because they're used to holding on to all of the cash that they have themselves. Um, I know I was having a conversation. I have so many stories that are just floating through my head right now. But I had a conversation with one of my students who's working at Walmart. And culturally, there's a lot of differences where the females don't hold on to money in her culture. And so she's expected to go to Walmart. She works and she's expected to turn the money all over her to her dad, who keeps all of the money in a safe in, in the house. And she was telling me, she was saying, I, I'm so excited because I learned about the Even app. And so I we did a little research together to try to figure out what it was. But Walmart has a system set up where students can get paid and then they can set money aside for saving schools. So she was so proud and she was telling me, she said, I'm saving a little bit of money that my dad doesn't know about because I want to buy a car. And she said, and what's happening with all of the money that she's giving her dad is she's suspecting is he's sending it back to the home country, which for so many of our students happens where they work and then people think they made it once they got to the United States. And I've had students explain to me that I, I make money, but I have to pay for a car and people don't realize how expensive it is to live here too. And so I don't have all this extra money that my distant cousins think I have. And they're just expected to pass it back to their families. Um, and then like Jeanette was saying with the credit cards, I had just explaining that and how students work. So, or that works for students. I have a, a class that I'm gonna call my hybrid hybrid class. So it's a group of seniors who need personal finance to graduate. It's a requirement couldn't fit it in their schedule. So I'm volunteering at the end of the day to teach them. And they're, they ask so many great questions and they make so many connections. But today we were talking about credit cards. And I said, do any of you ever go to the mall? And they say, do you want to save money today? And they said, yes. And I said, well, what do you do? And one of the girls said, I sign up at every one. I give them my, my license at every single one because I want to save money. And I said, do you know that they're checking your credit and you're lowering your credit score every time you do that. And she had no idea. So just having those conversations. But I I bet some of my native-born students would also have some of the same misconceptions if they didn't have this education. Yeah. It, can I add to that? Um, a lot of my students are saying, well, I'm not 18 yet. I can't get a bank account. But I want to get a job. And the job asked me to have a bank account. So then they have to get permission from their parents to get a bank account. And we did have that conversation about um, that. I think the United States is the only country in the world where you have a credit score. <laughs> because um, I know I talked to my mom about it one time and I said, well, you have to have a high credit score in this country to get good interest. And she was like, what is a credit score? Now my mom's from Germany. Um, so I think that these are things that when you come from a cash only society and um, a lot of our students, a lot of our students, I know that I've had 14 year olds, 15 year olds who were freshmen who were telling me, yeah, I have to pay the gas bill. I have to pay the electric bill. And I say, well, how do you do that? Well, I go to the currency exchange. And so they, you know, they they are familiar with these these check cashing places, currency exchanges, and so on, um, but they don't know about um, online banking. They don't they don't know a lot of these 
these things that we take for granted that we learn. So, um, and yes, you are absolutely right about, we have to teach these kids about bank accounts, a debit card, um, the dangers of signing up for a credit card in every place, and that your credit score can even keep you from getting a job. And they don't know that. They, they have no idea about these things. And that's taking it really a step back for those teachers who are teaching kids about investing and you know things that our kids are just not there. Yeah. Elena, I wanna bring you into the conversation here um, because Jeanette just shared that there are 500 students uh, in your ESL program, about a hundred are from other language backgrounds, tips for educators who might have not that many students in their classroom, but just tips on how to be an effective educator uh, when you're working with students with so many different languages. Well, um, I'm by myself. I am um, the ESL person and I'll be ESL for the rest of my life. So, and uh, um, Financial literacy, I believe in financial literacy, and I strongly believe that financial literacy is, is very important part of acculturation. So um, money is money, and how to deal with money, um, especially in, in another country, it's a big challenge. And uh, uh, for uh, students, and it doesn't really matter, it's ESL1, very, very low beginner or intermediate students, if they are new to the country, they don't know anything about how to deal with that. Plus, um, what I've realized even from my experience, um, um, any language we teach, any language we learn, we have to learn it uh, through idioms and uh, uh, financial literacy is um, important part of the language, not like acquisition, yes, partially language acquisition, but also skills that students have to learn in a new for them society. Um, financial language, language of finances filled up with uh, idioms and uh, students have a very hard time to understand. Like even right now, we uh, keep talking about gas bill and dollar bill, okay? So, and uh, these students, they really have a hard time to understand what's going on and what do they need to do. So, and uh, um, students, they have a hard time, even students with strong background, they have a hard time to navigate through financial system by itself. And also through even like value of money, like uh, some students were telling me, okay, in my country, all money, um, all, all bills or all money, paper money, they are of different colors and they are all of different sizes, whatever. Over here, everything is green. And it takes time for them to figure out what's what. Plus, um, very important documents, financial documents, they are written in the language that students and their parents, they cannot get it. They cannot understand it. And what's going on, like Jeanette said, okay, she applied to every single, she gave every single person her social or whatever she gave because she didn't know what's what. And in many cases, our students, 
they become some some um um they become uh, dangers to their parents, to their families. And if we will give them certain chunk of information, we will know that this information will be delivered to their homes. And uh, um, I mean, but kids are kids. So uh, definitely they will filter this information at their best. Uh, but again, at least financial literacy has to be done through school, in schools, it has to be a certain curriculum so uh, that we will get this information in portions uh, through certain classes for certain level of students. And uh, it's definitely very important. Yeah, I can only imagine. You, you talk about those idioms, how we just, uh, <laughs> there's so many things we take for granted. English is a difficult language uh, that way. Courtney, uh, let's talk, we've, Elena mentioned parents, and I know that you've um, you've told stories of students bringing lessons home to parents. So I wonder, kind of, yeah, share a couple of those. You know, where you're getting the feedback loop through parents, and do you do any special? I know it's always a challenge because folks' uh, time is limited. But have you had any success, perhaps, running uh, parent-focused personal finance sessions also? I would love that. I haven't got to that point yet, but I would love to do that. I know um, at our school, we call our ESL or our ELL. We actually rebranded a couple of years ago and we use the term ML for multilingual learners. Um, so that's how we kind of focus on, on a skills-based approach. But there, there were some ML classes for parents that were offered by some other teachers in the school and they did do some financial literacy with them, but they brought in banks, um, people from the banks and credit unions to do the education there. Um, I think my schedule just doesn't allow it right now. But some of the, the stories that I've heard, and, and I know that there's, we may not get to it, but there's the most important class documentary that Next Gen filmed, if people haven't seen it. Um, one of the highlights for me was there was a student in that video who was talking about her mom's credit utilization rate. And so she might not have been using the exact terms, but she was talking about how she was trying to keep her, help her mom get her credit score lowered. Two years later, that same student was in um, my COVID classroom. So we had our, our little hybrid pod during COVID and she was a senior. And I remember she was sharing out and she said, we were looking at houses this weekend. And I said, wait a second, like two years ago, she was on the documentary talking about how she was helping her mom fix her credit score. And then two years later, they were shopping for houses and looking to buy real estate. And I thought that's pretty cool. Um, so I don't always see the after effect, but in that case I did. And I just know other students who have gone home and, and had conversations with their parents. Um, I've had students come to me before we've done the fine print lease activity and I've had students come back to school and, and that's the hard, hard activity for students to do. So when I do the fine print in my classroom, it's always, we work as a table group on this together um, to make sure that there's some support for all of the students. But I had a student come back in and say, I read the lease. My landlord is breaking all the rules. So I explained it to my parents. And, and so he really helped his family by going home and then finding their lease and reading that. So those are just a couple of examples right off the top of my head. That is powerful. Uh, Jeanette or Elena, do you want to share? Uh... I, I, I would love to share something because um, Cherie Green was saying about the difficulty about understanding the currency. And I actually just this week had a lesson with my students and we were just talking about um, home countries. And one of the kids said, 
um, how different the money is in the country. So the con all the bills are different sizes, all the bills are different colors, and in America it's all one. And and I had to laugh. And I, I told the student what happened to me when I first came to America. I, I had no idea that all dollar bills were green. And I thought only the dollar, $1 was green. I had no idea that, you know, $5, $10, all these $20, they're all the same size and they're all green. And I had gone to a store and I had not paid attention to what I was buying. And I gave them, I gave a, a bill and I got changed back. I got all these dollar bills back, $1 bills and coins. And I was so confused because I had bought something that was less than a dollar. And now they're giving me back all these dollar bills and coins. And, I, and I'm just looking at this and I'm so confused. And she's like, okay, move on, move on. And I had to actually ask somebody, can you show me the money? Can you show me some money in America? And I realized that all the money had the same same size, same color, but a different number on it. And I thought about that. I said, how many people know that that come in this country? Maybe not everybody knows that. Because um, I came from a, an, a culture that had different size money, different colors. And that's how we, that's how we knew what to pay. Um, so there's so many things that um, that we don't think about. Um, and taxes. Most countries do not charge tax on top of your purchase. So when you go to the store and you buy something for $1, it's $1, but it's not $1 and six cents. You know, these are, these are all new things. Yeah. You know what, let me, I'll just add, uh, so actually, um, originally I am from Ukraine and I know definitely taxes are there but they are already embedded in the price. So if they charge you whatever, so it means taxes are there somewhere already added. But uh, what surprised me the most, um, when I, firstly I came to America and I came as an adult already. Um, so, and this is also the part of financial literacy as well. So let's say um, I used to work as a teacher back there and uh, when I came to America and I saw the price, uh, let's say like, a, you know, a bread, a loaf of bread cost $2. I thought, oh gosh, I will never buy bread in America because as a teacher back there, I mean, how much I was making, maybe $5 per month. So, and when I saw that just the bread cost over here, just a loaf of bread, $2, how can I buy bread over here? <laughs> so, and what are they gonna do later on? So um, all of these little things, not just about how to open up the bank account, but at first uh, it's very important uh, to minimize the culture shock. So in the financial literacy, he has to minimize it, that people will know. So even like people not getting paid over there, for example, twice a month, or maybe they getting paid once a month. So, so this is a part of a culture shock and culture shock kids, adults, probably more than students at first. And uh, if we can somehow come up with some kind of, it would be beneficial for families to have some kind of um, 
I mean, I don't know, um, parents' educations or some kind of uh, parents' classes that can be done through school and also um, at high school level, definitely. So, um, and definitely we can spread it to middle school, you know, like middle school, elementary school, they have this uh, through, through math classes, I think they have money value and all of these things, but uh, it's uh, extra important for um, high schoolers and uh, for parents. So obviously we talked about language challenges and we've touched a little bit on cultural too, but, and I think you alluded to this earlier, Courtney, um, the U.S. is a very individualistic society and you're talking about, you know, recent immigrants to this country sending money home and the family is, is so important. How do you bridge that gap, you know, to the extent that folks are coming in again from different countries into a society that's very much me, me, you know, me, 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 very individualistic with very strong attitudes about money. How do you surface that? And then how do you address it? I try not to change the fact that my students are so giving and kind. So that's one of the things that it just, it touches my heart every time I start a semester class. And I know you've referenced this before, but I always ask students to write down what they would do with a million dollars. So on the very first day of class, before I teach them anything, I say, you've got a million dollars now, write down what you would do with it. And the kids kind of just look at me in awe. Like, first of all, they're just trying to figure out how much a million dollars is and they're trying to get the visual of it. Um, but then they they write and it's it's never a few of them lately have started to really be interested in investing. So some of them actually come up with investing on the very first day of class, which I which I love. But most of them, I would buy my family a house. I would give back to my country. I would buy a home for for people back home. And and so they just think about others before themselves. And and I just find that it's unique and it's not something I expected as a personal finance teacher because I, I would probably have a different response in high school than they do. And I just, I think it's, it's touching. So, but the tricky part is I don't ever want to share my values or beliefs with them if they think, and, and I think this is really important as a personal finance teacher is not to make judgments on what people do with their money. And so I listen to them. If they say, I, I give my whole paycheck to my dad and, and I'll say, oh, okay, you, you know, and I'll just ask a couple more questions, but I try not to say, you know, that's not what I would do when I was in high school. I wouldn't say things like that. I'm just listening to them and letting them share how they handle money. Um, because students can, can instantly turn you off. I think if you, if you have different beliefs than they do, and if you make it known. And so I just try to share like, here's what I did and here's my story. And, and I want to hear their stories too. Do you think that has an impact on any of the students who were, who were born in America, hearing kind of the approach that some of your students have versus maybe if they've been in the culture since birth, they might have very different ways to spend a million bucks. Yeah, I think it does. I mean, I think it's everybody shares up, but then they also see similarities too. Like how many of you would buy a car? Oh, you know, Tim says he would buy a car. Who else would buy a car? And then they put their hands up and they can see that they have some similarities and some differences. And then, you know, I think some of the kids kind of feel bad when they didn't say to give all the money to their parents. And, and so they kind of feel bad about that. And, and it's just, it's, it's a way to just get the kids to connect in class right on the first day too. Um, I see this question in the chat and I want you to address this, Courtney. Um, if you go to downtown Winooski, you will find food from how many how many different countries? Um, the beautiful thing about America is the people who come here and the data bears this out time and time again, they start businesses. 
like some yeah. of the leading companies. You can talk small business, but you can also talk Silicon Valley business. You know, big tech. You can talk about how there is part of the gene of leaving your country to go somewhere else means you're a risk taker. Talk about, and I often think kind of personal entrepreneurship is another way to get to personal finance. You're teaching entrepreneurship now. What do you see in your classroom? So I tell my students, and for anybody who teaches both, maybe you say the same thing, but I tell my students, take personal finance to learn how to be a millionaire, and then take entrepreneurship to learn how to be a billionaire. So that's how I describe the differences between my classes. But for entrepreneurship, I switched to the the class curriculum two years ago. Um, I used to have students write business plans. They would enter into a state competition. I was very proud. Our students would always win first, second, or third place every year, which was exciting. And then they said, well, we, the other schools in the state couldn't come up with business plans. Like they weren't able to write the business plans in a one semester class. And I thought, well, if my students are doing it, yours can too. But anyway, they switched the competition and I said, well, I'm not going to have the kids still write these. Instead, we're going to switch to the lean business model canvas. And I'm going to give last year, I had a short budget. So I gave each group a hundred dollars to start a business and students worked together. And some of them decided that they were going to start a clothing business that never got off the ground. They didn't have the, the persistence and the grit to make that happen. Um, Another group said, well, we're not going to spend any money at all. And so they just started a thrift store in the school where they took things from the community and then they they sold them. And so they were making a profit. And then some a group of ladies, they decided that they were going to spend $20 out of their $100 on beads and started making jewelry. And they turned their $100 because they invested more and more into $600 by the end of the school year. And so they were pretty excited. I gave them the choice of what they wanted to do with the money and they gave back a quarter of it and then they each took a quarter of it. Um, so they said, give that to students next year. And so now this year, I'm excited. We actually applied for a grant for and got $7,000 to start our businesses. So we're actually getting heat presses and, and machines to make t-shirts and we're starting our school store back up again. So we're buying all the fixtures for that. And so the kids are are going to be doing that. And then they're going to use their money to go see Hamilton on Broadway, which is another exciting thing. If anybody is a title one school and you are near um, a city where they show Hamilton, there's the opportunity for schools to have the education program through Hamilton. So just a tidbit, if anybody else out there would apply for that. What are the characteristics you see of your students in the classroom that make them, you know, obviously not every business succeeded, but it seemed like they came up with some pretty good ideas on you know, with low amounts of capital, like I love the idea that several of them didn't spend anything and some only spent 20 and they made it go a long way. Like what are the, what are the characteristics, the personality traits you see that kind of make them entrepreneurs? I don't, I mean, they're just, they're really, they, so they come here and they have, again, maybe the American dream. They just want to make money. They want to be successful. They saw their family struggle so much and they come here and they just want to achieve and so for so many of the students, they're interested in a lot of different things. They they ask questions. They're just really curious. Um, just a quick side note. These are two students who are not in entrepreneurship, but I really want them in the next semester. There were two students I was walking to lunch one day and they said, we need to talk to you privately in your room. And so I, I was a little scared, but I followed them into my classroom and they handed me a plastic bag and they're actually making t-shirts at home. So they wanted to start their own clothing business. So they're working at Walmart. They're using all the money they're making from working at Walmart and they're buying shirts and they bought a heat press and they figured out how to do this. And I said, this is amazing. And I said, 
what are you two going to do? And they said, well, as soon as we get two heat presses, we're going to be competitors. And I said, okay. So right now they're sharing all of the supplies with each other, but then they're both going to start their own businesses and go in their own way. So it's just like, these are two kids too, who are not engaged in any class. Like one of them was skateboarding through the hallway the other day when he should have been in his, in his reading class, but they're so interested in business. So I think if you can find something that students are interested in too, that can engage them in different ways. Uh, I want to ask one more question, and then I want to open it up to questions in the chat. So feel free to to drop your questions in the chat. Um, I'll go to Courtney first. Then Jeanette, I, favorite activities your students love? Um, give me three. Oh no. <laughs> two. two. Okay. Two. Oh no. Even even more of the decision. Okay. Oh, I'm gonna okay. say. <laughs> it's okay. With in, in, I had five, but I'll go with two. Um, with investing, I think that that's something that the students absolutely love. And I'm going to give shout outs to two and GPF activities for this one. So I, I get on my soapbox and I know, Tim, I, I believe you feel the same way where the stock market game actually ruined the stock market and investing for me personally. Um, I played it as a kid. I came in last place. I absolutely hated it and thought, why would anybody want to invest? So I'm always looking for something to teach investing. That's not a short-term risky um, investing competition, because that's not how the market's made to work. So my two favorite activities for investing, which I think really sets off um, light bulbs for the students, is the Million Dollar Janitor. So there, that's also about a Vermont story. For those of you that haven't seen it on the NGPF website, it is about a, a man who was a custodian for many years in Vermont and ended up with $8 million that he left behind when he passed away. And I think that for students, for at any income range, I think they can see that this is attainable for me. And so I love that activity. And then I love five stocks on your birthday. Um, I modify a lot of assignments in my class. So I call it three stocks on your birthday for my students, but I give them the opportunity to do stock number four and five as extra credit because it just takes them a lot longer to go through. Um, you know, for a lot of the students, they're just learning how to use the computer for the first time. And so to manipulate five stocks as far as research, it's hard for some students. So those are my favorites just to teach investing because I think they could see long-term growth and the impact that little amounts over time can have. Okay, keep going. If you had five. My other two are connected, well, stacks, of course, with investing. That's like a little bonus game for them. But then my two for credit, we just did these today with the students and they, they loved it. And they said that much interest on a house. They couldn't believe it as far as how much money you pay back when you borrow something for 30 years. And so the FICO credit scores activity where we calculate the FICO credit scores and then the impact of credit scores on loans, uh, that would be the other. And then as far as budgeting, the salary-based budget, but I, so the NGPF salary-based budget, but I do that with a twist. So throughout the whole course, um, I always try to make things very personalized for students. So when it comes to buying a house or buying an apartment or buying a car, I have them research, like they jump on Zillow, they jump on Craigslist or whatever they decide to use and they cars.com and they actually try to find vehicles. And then throughout the class, we start at researching careers at the beginning. And then at the very end, the salary-based budget is the final project. And they have to take the numbers that they found throughout their resource research throughout the semester and put it all into a budget to see if it's going to work for them. And so that's something else that, that I love. This was good. Okay. How did I credit scores like how do they grapple with that i think 
Jeanette mentioned earlier, like we may be the only country, I think other countries are in the process, like you can kind of build a continuum along how, how a country moves towards more of a credit-based society. And you got to have credit scores in order for lenders to be able to assess risk. But you know, what do they think about the system in terms of it? It's got to be eye-opening to them that they're getting graded and they're getting a number and it seems random in terms of, you know, some things make sense, but other parts of it maybe don't. It used to be so easy for me to explain too, and <laughs> because I used to explain it like the, this is like your transcript and and these are your grades and and they go together. But then we moved to proficiency based learning, and so <laughs> grades are a thing of the past. So I can't even make that comparison anymore. Um, so they, I mean, it it takes time. We go over it. We watch lots of videos. We understand. We can. I I tell a lot of personal stories, so I share with them with permission without using names but there are teachers at our school who wanted to buy houses, thought they were doing everything out right all through their life because they never used credit cards. They always paid with cash for everything and they saved up all kinds of money to have a down payment on a house. They went to the bank and the bank said no. And I just found out today, another teacher, same thing happened to, to them. And so we just talk about um, that it's okay to borrow and show that you can pay back. So that way you can have some of the bigger things that you would want later down the road. And, and so that's kind of eye-opening for our students. Yeah, I, I remember um, a friend of mine talking about the exact same thing when I first came to the United States, that his mom was trying to get a loan and she had a house and she had everything in order. She had no debt, she had cash and everything. She couldn't get a loan. And he was trying to explain that to me. And with my limited English back then, I just felt like, what is he talking about? And I was, my English was actually pretty good at that time. Um, it was limited, but I, I think about our students when you're trying to explain that to them. And, and I remember that from way, way back. And I always was really, really conscious about having a good credit score. I, I, I figured out how to use my credit card. And of course, Credit Karma is a great tool. You know, you can kind of keep track of it that way they, or they keep track of it. Um, so it's, it's a really, really hard concept to wrap your head around when you're a foreigner. And I, I'm a foreigner. I, and it, took me a long time to figure it out. My husband still doesn't understand it. And yeah, so that that's that's really, really good that you are teaching that to your kids because they think that having a chunk of money, my mother-in-law actually had money under the mattress. Yep. I mean, that's a, such a cliche, but I was like, oh, wow. <laughs> that's really a, a real, real thing. Yeah. And uh, um, I also can say uh, that as a foreigner, so uh, we always have to overcome uh, the level of, we always have to realize the level of trust, actually, uh, who to trust, because um, we came from, you know, from different societies that they had, people did not trust the they do not trust their governments. They do not trust their financial institutions. And uh, uh, for um, our families and for students, whom will they believe? I mean, the person from commercial, person who is still stranger to them, if they are going to, for example, even to the bank 
and they will try to explain something to, to them and uh, or a friend who will tell, no, you need to do it this way, this way, and that's it. Or the uh, person who will try to convince them, open up this card or do this or do that. They don't know whom to trust. They don't know whom to give or whom to turn in their money. I understand, yes, it's still there. And uh, again, so um, if we talk about, again, back to financial literacy or financial knowledge, um, small steps count. Um, and again, you know, with our students. So if they trust you, so um, we will be successful. <laughs> no, it's a great point. It's a great point yeah. because there is a continuum of countries, you know, some where it's high trust, although that's number seems to be dwindling. And then there's kind of the extremely low, low trust of institutions and financial. It's funny, like today they reported inflation uh, was a little bit lower than expected. I think it's 7.7%. And I'm thinking about, you know, students who come from other countries, they would probably love to have an inflation rate of 7%, right? You go to places like Venezuela, where the money is devalued almost on a daily basis. And they're, you know, you don't hold on to cash because you're getting inflated away. And so that leads to another set of habits where you're just, you want to spend money because it's going to be worth a lot less in the future. And so it's kind of fascinating. The thing I loved about this session is I really feel like it helps build empathy um, mm -hmm. because it's very easy to kind of think about our own attitudes, our own experiences. And then you all telling the stories um, that you have just makes an appreciation for things like you don't give a second thought when you grow up here about how currency works. And yet, if you're going from a different system and then you brought up the trust issue, we talk about financial products, which are outside the realm of anybody's imagination until they come to this country. And so it's just such an important role that you all play kind of helping. I think Elena hit the point that what a great way to kind of help, you know, in effect, bring them into American culture by teaching them about money. And then all of the, we know all the traps that are out there for immigrants, for recent immigrants too, right? The predators are out there, folks, trying to take advantage of them. And so, so, so critical that you all are doing the work that you're doing. A few final housekeeping items before we go. Links to the resources that were discussed, especially all of those activities that Courtney shared. We'll put those in the show notes, which you can find at www.ngpf.org forward slash podcasts. Better yet, subscribe, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I want to thank Ren McKino, who produces our podcast every week, as well as the detailed show notes, so you know what we discussed and when it was discussed in the podcast. Thank you, Ren. So on behalf of Courtney, Jeanette, and Elena, I want to thank you again for tuning in to this NGPF podcast. Have a wonderful week.